does it if he's here, or David Tarr might do it. So, um, it, it, Alex is a one-man band this morning. So. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Alex. He, at times he wished he was born an octopus. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Taking our offering. And uh, we're going to turn to God's word. I'm not discarding the Bible. It's just that I've got today's uh, passage printed out. It's just more convenient for me. Good. Well, um, you'll know that we're now into a new series. And um, if you, have you all got sermon notes? All got some? Yep. Okay, good. And um, generally speaking, it's under the title, uh, The Restoring of God's People. And we're looking at this uh, particular subject in the context of Israel's history um, around the time when uh, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians uh, and the Babylonian Empire became the Persian Empire and what God did to restore his people. They were taken into exile because of judgment. Um, They had sinned dreadfully, they turned to other gods and we looked at that in some well, fairly briefly, a couple of weeks ago, um, looking at how um, they were worse than the nations around them in terms of their idolatry. And it was necessary for God to judge them. But the message then was about God's faithfulness when we um, looked at this a couple of weeks ago, how that God was faithful and would restore his people. And um, you'll notice that... uh, that we're headed um, in terms of uh, our, st- our, our title, um, Nehemiah 1, 1 to 11, and you could be turning to that um, if you've got your Bibles, but also praying with passion. So we're looking at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the restorers. Uh, if you remember, um, the first wave of Jews that went back went back with Zerubbabel, who uh, became a, a local ruler. Uh, then Ezra took some more people. He was a priest and he restored uh, the word of God to the people. And now we come to Nehemiah, some years later, in fact. It's sometimes difficult to pick up the time scales for the way that these things happen. And um, the, the book of Nehemiah opens um, with uh, um, some news that he received and a prayer. And so we're going to be looking in some ways at prayer today. Now I do that with a degree of trepidation and I think most preachers would um, because we stand here and say um, who is qualified to speak about prayer? Um, We all know that it's our priority. If you ask any Christian what's the priority in the Christian life they would probably say well one of the things would be prayer. Um, If we were to, to be examined to demonstrate whether that was our priority we'd probably all fall short of the mark. I know I would. So I find it much easier to read the Bible than I do to pray on my own. I enjoy praying with others, but when it comes to praying on my own. So I want to say this morning, I'm not standing here as an expert telling you how to do it. Um, Together we're at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we've seen you pray, Lord Jesus. We've seen you pray all night. Uh, We've seen the relationship you have with the Father. So Lord, please teach us to pray. So I'm sitting where you are 
um, even below where some of you are, no doubt, in terms of prayer. But that's what we want to turn to this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are your disciples. We are those who are learning. And um, Lord, you don't uh, expect, expect us to come uh, with all the skills and all the qualifications. Lord, you make us fit for your kingdom by saving us and forgiving our sins. Lord, and then you train us and then you call us to follow you. And Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to the things that you want to bring out of this passage. Lord, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I didn't mention it in the notices, but um, this Thursday is our, one of our days of prayer and fasting. So I've just put a title there, The Beacon Days of Prayer and Fasting. And we've introduced them because somehow we wanted to um, further highlight the fact that prayer is very important, particularly corporate prayer is very important. When the church comes together, what we do together is extremely important. Yes, we can seek God on our own, but it's very important what we do together. So many of the instructions um, given to the church and given to Christians is about what they do together. We are a body and it's important that we pray together. So we're given this opportunity. But I just wonder what you think about the prospect. You're thinking about Thursday and you're thinking, yeah, but we've had to give up our cell group, haven't we, this week? Mm, I wish we didn't have to give up cell group. I'm not sure. You know, and maybe there isn't the enthusiasm for it then you, <laughs> that you would like. You would like to be there, you know. And, um, you know, Maybe there's, there's not a stirring in your heart say, yes, I want to meet with my brothers and sisters and yes, I want to pray. So hopefully um, we're, we're going to look at some of that. Um, if you think about the, the English church in prayer, what word would best suit? Passion or politeness? <laughs> now, um, maybe present company accepted but for many churches, it's about we must say the right words. We must, you know, as it were, quite rightly treat God reverently and must be very careful what we say. And we must hold our emotions in check here. We can't let them go, all right? But um, uh, there are some churches around the world that um, certainly pray with passion. I don't know whether Alex can bring up uh, the pictures. We've lost all off the screen now, but okay, don't worry. They, they would have been pictures of some Chinese believers in prayer. Now, they weren't even as extreme as I was hoping, but if you've ever seen pictures or seen videos, there are crowds of them, and they're just crying out to God with such anguish and tears rolling down their face. There is so, so much passion, and they're praying for their nation, they're praying for the church, uh, they're praying for their towns. They, they just have such a passion to pray. Now, I do realise that culture may have something to do with this. We are known for our reservedness, aren't we, as, as uh, English people. And you can compare perhaps a funeral in this country with, say, a funeral in the Middle East. If you've ever watched funerals in the Middle East there's a great deal of passion and anguish. There are people who are wailing, they're throwing themselves on the floor, they're beating on the coffin, they even have professional mourners to really you know, 
whip up a storm because this is the way they express their grief. Uh, I'm not knocking that, uh, if that's how they express it, but we are much more reserved. So I'm sure that culture has something to do with it. But surely we have some passions that can be expressed more than with politeness. We need to approach God with a lot more passion at times. And um, the root of passionate prayer will be some emotion in us. That's, that's the root of it. Some emotion is stirred in us. And I've just put some uh, as an example here. You know, if we're in great distress, maybe some, there's some tragedy happened in our family and we don't know where to turn and, you know, there is that distress or there's anguish or there's fear and these things may turn us to prayer. I remember some years ago we were on holiday on the west coast of France uh, with our family. Uh, the lads were quite, quite young at the time and we got down on this lovely beautiful breach, you know, miles and miles of golden sand, lovely Atlantic rollers coming in, lovely sunny day and we park our stuff and we start getting undressed and Simon, our youngest, um, he's down in the sea straight away and Kevin and I are still getting undressed. Anyway, by the time Kevin and I go down to the sea, that Simon is nowhere to be seen. He's just not there and we thought, silly, he went from here to here and he's not there. So we look this way, we walk this way, we walk that and we walked, looked out at the sea, and the sun's coming off the sea, so it's a bit hard. And it's something starting to get in, stir in me, and I'm thinking, well, these are pretty, pretty big breakers, and, you know, has, it, has he gone down? Is he under the water somewhere? And I went searching around, looking, and this kind of emotion is, is rising at me all the time. And so we, Kevin and I walk down there, and Joe can see there's something wrong. We go back and tell Joe. I even go to the, the lifeguard who's up on a... On a pair of steps and things and trying to communicate in French which wasn't very easy as to what was, you know, what was, what, what's going on. Anyway, we get there and we just huddle together and we cry to God about our son Simon, you know. What, what's going on, you know? We, we didn't need anybody to prompt us. We, we, you know, we're really anxious for him. I don't know quite how long it was. It must have been at least three quarters of an hour. And suddenly he's coming down the coming down the beach, because he's not got his glasses, has he? You know, he's coming down the beach from miles away. He just, just wandered off. We must have just missed him, where we looked in time. Oh, the relief, you know. But it drove us to prayer. You know, we were desperate. <laughs> we drove us to prayer. Right? It might be frustration. or in, Wait, yeah, frustration perhaps. You know, you need, um, perhaps you go to a, a foreign country, you've got a, some mission activity and you need to get the authorities' um, cooperation uh, and what happens, that it's days and days and days before they'll do anything and then they want a bribe, you know, and you're just so frustrated, it's building up in you. Maybe indignation um, over some injustice. There's so much injustice in our world. Um, one, as an example, might be all the uh, children that are being sold into prostitution around the world. It's absolutely dreadful. Thousands and thousands of them. These, you know, these children, so at tender age, are being sold into prostitution. Maybe that causes indignation. On the other end of the scale, not something that's bad, but something that's good, um, we might be excited about a vision that God's given us. God's shown us what, what our church will be or whatever. And we're really excited about it. And it drives us to prayer. But um, these Emotions will only um, uh, result in passionate prayer uh, if we have a confidence that God will answer and that God uh, will do what we cannot do. Um, that he, it's worth taking these things to God. 
because perhaps we've all known it when we've been a bit low that something's gone wrong and somehow or other we haven't taken it to God. You know, we've just wallowed in it. Um, but there needs to be an element of faith along with the passion that's raised in us or aroused in us because of the circumstances. One encouragement to praying with faith is knowing what is on God's heart and to what he is committed, isn't it? If we know what is on God's heart, what God is committed to, then we know if we pray along those lines, then we are praying according to God's will. And that's important, we know that. We pray in Jesus' name, which means we pray in accordance with his will and purpose. So that may encourage us uh, to pray fervently when we know what's on God's heart. So we're going to look at the passion of Nehemiah's prayer. Um, Many of you will know his situation. He tells you at the end of this um, chapter that he was a cupbearer to the king. This was no just no butler uh, to the king. Um, He was a wine taster, and it would have the idea was that that, that the king needed to be protected from any attempts to assassinate him, maybe by putting poison in the wine. So it was Nehemiah's job uh, to taste the wine before it was handed to the king. It was a very, very important job, extremely important job. And um, although he was in a foreign land, he'd been given a a, a position um, that was very, very important. And in that position, he was quite comfortable. He had a a good position, he had status, um, he he was really somebody um, in the the community. And um, actually, this is part of God's purpose for the exiles. The purpose in exiling his people wasn't just to bring judgment and to cause them to repent from their sin, but it was that they might grow and multiply, even grow in wealth as well. So that when they came back to the land, when they came back to Jerusalem, they would have something to contribute to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we, get, we know this from this passage in Jeremiah that I've printed out here. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't that amazing? Here's a heathen city, uh, a heathen land, an alien place, and God is saying, pray that it might prosper so that you will prosper. And if you prosper, then uh, you can use your prosperity in my purposes. Now, it doesn't actually say that, but we recognise and we see what happens later, that that's exactly what they did. They were able to contribute to all the funds necessary for the rebuilding of the city. And we have a, you know, modern parallels with that. Um, there are Christian businessmen um, who see their main aim is to raise money for the kingdom of God. Um, it's not just for their own ends. They're not just making money for their own ends. And it's right to pray for such people that they prosper under God's hand so that more money can be released into the kingdom. We've got um, a a wonderful example of that um, in uh, the man Graham who provided the farm for Church on the Farm this year. Not all of you went, 
but uh, an amazing provision. Now he's a, he runs a software, computer software company. The farm is just his hobby. He's not a farmer himself, he owns the farm, but it's, it's just a hobby in a sense, and he's trying to promote uh, organic farming, which doesn't pay. He's not making any money out of it, but he, he wants to promote uh, organic food. And um, I don't know whether you know, but he provided the, the, the fields free. He paid for the marquees, he paid for the toilets, the showers, the water. He paid for everything because he wanted to invest in the kingdom of God. Now we want to pray for this man, prosper under God's hand, so you can release more money into the kingdom. So what Nehemiah's situation wasn't, wasn't wrong. It was part of God's purpose. But nevertheless, we can be comfortable in an alien land, can't we? We can be comfortable. In, thank you, God, for providing me with a nice house and some money in the bank and a car and all those things. Thank you, God. That's, right. Try and use those for your purposes. But if God wants to move us on somewhere, if God wants us to do something that will mean that we've got to put those to one side, maybe he has to shake us to do it. Because if we are being called, we'll say to some remote place, you know, that has no electricity and all the rest of it. And we might be thinking, yes, but I'm very comfortable here. Why, why should I go to a place that's got no electricity or whatever else, or that's di- disease-ridden or whatever? So sometimes God has to really shake us, even if it's God's purpose that we should prosper. Um, nevertheless, he needs to shake us. So if we look at verses 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. So he hears some distressing news about Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, the first two waves of, of people that went back, the first wave, um, they re-established the, temp- the, the altar, they rebuilt the altar, they re-established the sacrifices, they then built the temple, took a bit of a time, but the temple was dedicated with great joy. Then, then Ezra goes back and he restores the word of God to the people. Pretty good news, some really good things happened. That seems not to be mentioned here. The headlines are, the people are in disgrace. Their walls are uh, are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. This word disgrace, why are these people in disgrace? It's because of what Jerusalem now appears to be by the nations that are around them. It's a disgrace to have your walls broken down and your gates not properly in place. And um, Nehemiah is deeply distressed, and he grieves uh, for the city. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he mourned, he fasted and prayed for some days. This news really hit him hard. Um, I don't know whether that kind of news would hit us hard, but it hit him hard. And, um, you know, we can only assume that um, Nehemiah knew something of God's heart for the city of Jerusalem. Being the age that, we, that he was and, and this time after the exile, it's very likely that he'd never been to Jerusalem. He'd never been there and known the splendour of the past. 
the splendor of Solomon and all the wonderful things that had happened, what a glorious city it was and how wonderful. He didn't know that. But by understanding and reading the scriptures, uh, he would actually gather what God's heart was for the city. And we, we believe that Nehemiah loved God. And if he loves God, he will love what God loves. You know, and that will be true for us. If we love God, then we can't ignore what God loves. Uh, otherwise, we're perhaps denying that love. So maybe he was aware of these scriptures, and there's some psalms here. For the Lord has chosen Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem uh, was built. Uh, it was taken from the Jebusites uh, by David, and this became now the, the city of God. So it's a name for the mountain and the, and the city, but also it became a name for the people, the people of Zion. So, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the uttermost heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. This is the city where God had chosen to make himself known. This was to be the city on a hill, as Jesus talked about the church being a city on a hill, um, where people would uh, have some understanding of what God is. God was to make himself known here. He would dwell there, and it will be the joy of the whole earth. How can a city with its walls broken down and its gates burned with fire be the joy of the whole earth? It was a disgrace. You know, if people looked at it and said, this is your God, look, look at the state of your city. Not much of a God, is he? Look at the state of your city. And so Nehemiah would have known what, what the city of God ought to be and how it ought to be the joy of the whole earth and a place where God was pleased to dwell, the city of the great king. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship God. It was meant to attract the nations around, uh, not cause them to ridicule it. It was meant to attract them. And this is what I believe got to um, Nehemiah's heart. He knew what it should be. He knew what God desired for this city. And it really broke his heart. And so he turns to God in prayer. You ought to turn over your, your sheets. So, knowing what Jerusalem should be, he grieves over its broken down state. Maybe his grief, grief was intensified because he knew he could do nothing about it. He is virtually a slave. He's in the um, uh, employment or the, the service of the king and there was no way that he could naturally approach the king and say, look, I just want to go back and, and rebuild this city. I, I've got some wherewithal to do it. He also knew that he needed materials. He needed money and materials. He needed um, letters to uh, allow him to pass safely through the area. And I guess at, at, at this point, he thinks, I don't know how I'm going to achieve it. Uh, I, there's no way that I can achieve that. Now, if, if we have a burden for something, and we can see how we can perhaps make a difference... 
Perhaps we hear of something that's in distress, whatever it is, and we say, well, yep, yeah, I'll go over there, I think I can make a difference, I, I can do this and do that and the other. It takes the pressure off a bit, doesn't it? Uh, even though it, it, it's a terrible thing that you're going to try and help, you think, well, at least I can make a contribution. But his distress, I think, was partly because he thought, there's no way I can do anything about this. Maybe he would have been, wouldn't have been quite so passionate and dependent on God uh, had he been able to just pack his bags and go. But he uh, is very passionate about this, and so um, he goes before God and he weeps uh, in God's presence. Um, what are we passionate about? Anybody passionate here? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not, it's not surfacing at the moment, but I, I'm sure there is some. It's, it's English, we're not actually known too much, are we? But there are some things that people get passionate about. Um, football. Now then, this is, I'm sure this is mainly the men, but we don't want to exclude the ladies if you're passionate about football. Um, I think Leslie's passionate about rugby, aren't you? You like rugby, don't you? Never understood the game, but it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine, yeah. But um, even the reserved Englishman can get very passionate about football to the point sometimes it spills over to violence, doesn't it? You know, uh, very sadly what we see. And I remember some years ago when I was in the eldership at, um, at New Life with two young guys as they were at the time, um, Paul Johnson and Trevor Atkins, and we had an meet, elders meeting around our house and we were just about to assemble and Trevor's countenance was fallen. He was, you know... And I'm thinking, oh, what's, what's the problem, Trevor? You know, you know, you've got some problem in the family, you know? I said, Trevor, you're not yourself this morning. What's the problem? Arsenal lost last night, didn't they? <laughs> I said, is that really affecting you? Yeah, it is. It is. I thought, it's only a game. It's only a game. But it wasn't to him. It was one of his passions. Arsenal. Uh, there we go. For some people, it's making money. These are only ex- illustrations, all right? But for some people, all their waking um, life, they are thinking about how they can manipulate situations and people and the money they've got. Can they invest it better? Can they take out you know, shares and all the business? And that's their, their whole focus. Will this make me more money? Or, or will I lose money or whatever? And that can be their passion. And um, again, this is just an illustration, but it's perhaps nearer to the, the example that we have in the Bible, and that is there are people um, um, very passionate about storing, uh, restoring um, the city of Jerusalem to the Jews. And we know that um, this is a political issue and it's a spiritual issue for some. For some of the people there in Israel, um, it's a political issue about the, uh, the, the sovereignty of the nation, and, and others, it's a spiritual thing. For them, and they are very passionate about it. And there are Christians that are very passionate about the city of Jerusalem and its future. Now, I'm not knocking that, but if in fact they are more passionate about Jerusalem than they are about the focus of God's passion now, then I do think there is something wrong. Okay, so I'm not, not knocking it in principle, but if they are consumed by that and they're missing what in fact is now God's passion then I believe that would be wrong. So, what is God's passion and um, how uh, do um, we share that? Um, Okay, so I'm just going to read these scriptures and then you tell me what is God's passion. 
Husbands, love your wives. Yes, God does have a passion for marriage. Um, and I'm sure he is very concerned that marriage is being sidelined and people are choosing alternatives. But that's not the point. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's God's passion? Good. It is, isn't it? It's very clear. And um, look what it cost him. Look what he's invested in it. What God has invested in it. that, That he gave himself up to make her holy. Jesus gave himself up for the church. And whereas Jerusalem was to be a place that demonstrated the glory and the sovereignty of God. And Nehemiah was upset about it because the walls were, were, were broken and um, the, um, uh, the gates were burned with fire. That was to be the place that would demonstrate the glory and the presence of God. It is now the church. It's got his intent was that now through the church, the manifest manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly heavenly realms, even you know to the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose. So the church is God's purpose. It's through the church that He wants to display His glory in the earth. It's through the church that He wants to make His glory and praise known. Okay. It's very clear, and we even get a picture. Um, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, as to the, the consummation of all that God is doing. God is calling out people from all over the world to be part of a bride, the bride of Christ, which is formed from the church. So those who belong to the church will ultimately be part of the bride of Christ. And we have this lovely picture. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful Sorry, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. As you look at some of the imagery in those last chapters of Revelation, it talks about a city and it talks about its, you know, how can we measure it? How big is it? And what's it made of? Precious stones and gold and silver. It can leave an impression that it is a city that we walk about in. But it's very clear from the rest of the scriptures that the city is the people of God. It's people, it's not things paved with God. It's just showing the splendour of it and how vast it is. Okay? But it's the people of God. So it's the new Jerusalem. It's not the old Jerusalem, it's the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven. Those people that have been joined to Jesus are now coming to be his bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Remember what he said about Zion, what God said about, this is where I want to dwell. But now it's the new Jerusalem. 
and I will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, has passed away. This is God's passion and we have to say, do we share it? Do we have a passion for the church? You say, the church? The church? You know, it's something that's often maligned or scorned uh, in the world. But, you know, do we love what God loves? Do we love what God loves? Um, I, you know, as I said, Nehemiah loved Jerusalem, although he'd not ever been there. He'd never been there. But do we love the church? What then is our reaction to the news that the church in this country is in decline? How do we feel about that? Now, statistically, that is still true, although we are cushioned a bit because we're part of a movement that is growing. You know, New Frontiers, amongst other similar movements, is growing. And on the programme at the moment is to plant a new church every month. That's, on average, that's how many new churches are being planted in the UK. 50 other nations around the world, and we know that um, if, we, if you follow the Christian news, that, that, that the church is growing rapidly in many other countries. But in this country, the general impression um, given to the general public would be the church is in decline. All right? it's, it's, fa- it's being phased out. It's not fit for purpose, you know, or fit for the future, as David was talking about last week. So it's in decline. Um, that there is a lack of unity and biblical values are being discarded. What do you think about that? Now, you know, we've maybe seen on the news um, some of the um, uh, discussions and debate that's gone on in the Anglican Church over certain moral issues. And clearly, they're not in unity anymore. Now, we could say, well, it then nothing to do with us. You know, it's the Anglican Church and, you know, we're, we're in something else. But they are to do with us. We're actually part of the same church. And, you know, does their disunity, does their, does the threat of um, unbiblical practices um, bother you? Are you concerned? Because, you know, to the world looking in there, their walls are broken down, you know? And uh, I've suggested here that we can consider um, walls representing unity and, and gates represent sound doctrine. Um, in our recent um, touch paper that Steve prepares, he's very gracious, he puts John and David on the bottom, but it's actually Steve prepares it, okay. He's he's very gracious. But um, very helpful little um, things for us to think about month by month. But he made the point when it's all to do with God's perspective on things, that a decision was made last week by the Evangelical Lutheran Church that they voted to allow practising gays as clergy. And, of course, this was a similar problem in the Anglican Church, that even um, allowing bishops uh, who are practising homosexuals uh, to to practise as bishops. And, um, you know, I think you can consider that, that gates represent sound doctrine, that we enter the church on the basis of sound doctrine, not on anything goes. And um, you remember Jesus in John, Ch- John chapter 10, he referred to himself as the gate or the door uh, of the sheepfold. He said, others come in, robbers and thieves, they jump over the wall. He said, but, uh, but you know, if you want to come in properly, you come in through me. And so it's very important 
that the church has gates, so it has doors, um, so that people can come in and become members on the right basis, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone uh, and, f- and trusting in him alone for salvation. It's very important. And that God's standards are maintained. And part of the role of elders in the church uh, is to guard the flock of God. That's what Paul tells the Ephesian elders in um, Acts chapter 20. You know, guard the flock of God, uh, of, of which God has made you overseers. And that it's, it, amongst other things, it's David and I's responsibility that false doctrine does not come into the church uh, and that um, people are not coming in on false pretenses. There is only one way. God adds to the church those who are being saved. So it's, it's very important. But church in some respects, is a disgrace regarding the outside world. You know, they look at the television reports, and I know that the media can, can you know, hype things up, and that which is maybe a small thing can be made to look good, or look big, rather. But um, I don't know what you think about that. When you see the church being criticised, you might say, well, you know, that's their fault, they should get their act together. Well, maybe they should, but maybe it should touch our hearts too because it's, we're part of the same church. And th- th- there is indeed a lack of unity. We're not thinking about um, organisational unity, but we're talking about unity of heart and purpose and love and uh, based on sound doctrine. So then um, we're just going to look briefly at what Nehemiah prays. His passion, his concern, his distress was the fact that the thing that God loved um, was in disgrace. And for us, um, if we feel the church in some way is in disgrace, then we should be uh, passionate about it and passionate about uh, the the thing that God's son died for. So we're going to just look at um, some of these verses. Nehemiah prays on the basis that God is faithful to his covenant people. Uh, Nehemiah feels he has a rationale to go to God and get a reasonable answer from God. He's got a good, he thinks I'm on, I'm on good territory here uh, if I pray in this way. So he prays, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Remember that he was in a polytheistic um, environment. There were thousands of gods. Many nations gathered together who had their own gods. And now he's making the point, I'm praying to the God of heaven. This phrase, is you'll find it in Daniel and other places too, it's a, a way of distinguishing um, that, uh, that the, the, the true God from all these false gods that were around him. O Lord, God of heaven, and we pray, Heavenly Father, Father in heaven, our Father who is in heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So he's a covenant-keeping God. God has made a covenant with the people of Israel. Uh, He made it with Abraham uh, and then there was another covenant at, at Sinai. But the covenant had conditions. It was a covenant with conditions and if you know anything about what surrounded the Ten Commandments it talks about blessings and curses and and what was said if you obey God's commands it will mean blessing to you but if you don't you can only expect curses 
Sometimes people are afraid of the curses uh, of other people. Uh, I don't think we need to be. I don't think they have any power. But beware of the curses of God. It it is God who can curse and bring judgment um, if we do not obey his commands. So um, this is what um, Nehemiah recognised. And he said, Israel belongs to God by divine covenant. And Nehemiah trusts that he has God's intention. What he's saying is, God, I know you're committed to this, this nation, even though it's sinned against you, even though it's turned to other gods. I know you're committed because you're a covenant-keeping God. And that's the same for us. That we know God is committed to the church because of what he's invested in it. And the scripture that um, I often quote, and I think was one that Ivan read last week, and, um, and it says, And God who did not spare his own son, but um, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? That's Romans 8.32 there. So if God has given us his son, we can trust him that he's going to finish the job and that God is still committed to his church uh, because of what he's invested in it. And then he confesses the sins of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave to your servant Moses. He could have disassociated himself. He could have said, that was another generation. This generation is different. Now, we're not going to do what our former generation did. But he saw himself as an integral part of the same people and he confessed their sin and particularly the sin of being disobedient to God's word. And and whilst I think there are some reservations about it, if we are aware that the church, the genuine church in this country, um, is sinning because it's um, disobeying God's word, maybe, maybe we should feel some association with it, as I've said. And that maybe it's not inappropriate for us to say, God, I know it's not our branch of the church, but it's your church and we're part of it in this country, Lord, we grieve over these things. Lord, we grieve over the things uh, that, that, these, that the church is teaching or allowing to happen. Then verse, and they, uh, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not uh, obeyed the commandments and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Then verse 8, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful, Sorry, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you, your, exile, your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, I will gather them from, from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So there is a sense in half of that is that they got what they deserved. They were unfaithful, so they were scattered. But then there was the promise of restoration in verse 9. But God has promised restoration in response to their repentance. There was a responsibility on them. Even though this was God's plan and purpose, they needed to repent and to turn back to him, to turn back to God. And then in verse 10, we find they don't only, he doesn't only acknowledge that these are your people, but they're your redeemed people. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. I assume there he's referring to their deliverance from Egypt, their bondage in Egypt, uh, that terrible slavery that God freed them from, which the Jews continue to remember to this day. 
Uh, they remember um, their deliverance from Egypt. So they're not just his people, but they're a redeemed people. And that's us too. We've been bought with a price. We're redeemed, the precious blood uh, of Jesus. And then in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Those who delight in God can expect God's attention. We sang this morning about returning to our first love. I don't want to ever lose my first love. And the, the key to effective prayer is, first of all, loving God with all our hearts isn't it? and loving what he loves, you know, finding out what pleases him, what are his plans and purposes for this world. And in our case particularly, uh, uh, what does he think about the church? What's his plan and purpose for the church? And so how much we love him. And um, what we find is that having got all this way down, his prayer, and, and what effectively Nehemiah is doing is building his own faith. He's reminding himself of who God is, what God is committed to, the power of God, um, and, and all these things that would build his faith. And then he has a request. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. So do you see the process that he's gone through? He's, he's given um, himself, but in a sense speaking to God, and saying, God, you have every reason to answer my request because these are your people, these are your covenant people, these are the people you've redeemed, you've promised to restore them, and now give me success. So it's important that when we come to pray, that we think about the promises of God. What does God promise concerning his church? What does God promise concerning his people? And they ne- that needs to be rehearsed, and we need to come to God uh, with that kind of perspective. And he says, I was cupbearer to the king. So faith had been built, now the request. And of course, faith can move mountains, as we know, as Jesus said. We'd only need faith the size of a mustard seed. And you say to this mountain, be removed, and it goes. But we need to build faith. And um, I trust that's often what we do when we worship, when we come to pray. We sing songs of praise that glorify God, that, that talk of his majesty, his power, and his might. And that builds faith in us to come and pray. So what is your passion? All right? And you say, well, I know it ought to be the church, but perhaps it's not what it ought to be. Perhaps I'm not that excited about the church. Well, then we need to see what God has to say about it and we need to catch God's heart. And if we see there's something wrong, now, I, I don't know whether I could you know, fast and mourn and pray for days. It's, going without food is not such a problem in one sense, but actually, am I going to you know, be that distressed before God about the things that I see? But maybe, maybe if I, you know, I'm more intent to find out you know, what's on God's heart and what God thinks about things, maybe I'll catch his heart and maybe then I'll be able to pray effectively in the circumstances. So there's a little lesson um, from um, Nehemiah. What is your passion? God's passion at one time was for his city, Jerusalem, that will be the praise of the earth. Now it's the church uh, who will be a demonstration of God's multifaceted wisdom in the earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you, Lord, are a passionate God. Father, you're not afraid to say what you love. 
And Lord, you're not afraid to invest in what you love. Lord, I pray that you'll help us more and more to catch your heart for the church. Not to look at its broken down walls and burned gates and and somehow be depressed by that and feel it's hardly worth praying. But, Lord, to see what you've planned, that glorious church that you will present to yourself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Lord, that you'll present it to yourself with such joy and you will so delight to dwell among your people for all eternity. Lord, help us to catch that, Lord. Help us to catch the spirit of that so that, Lord, when we're discouraged, Lord, when we're cast down, when maybe we're even disillusioned about some events that that we may be caught up with in church life, that we look up and we see, um, Lord, your vision for the church and that we get passionate about it. And, Lord, we even get distressed about its condition. And, Lord, not about our, just our feelings and how we've been hurt, but, Lord, about what you think about the church. And, Lord, that we'll begin to pray more effectively. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.